1: My name is Matt Fries and I'm your host as always. Today, I got a professor on the show and he is a professor in public health. He knows a ton about climate change and air. He has a master's and doctors from Harvard. Yes, you know, that top, top, top university that you uh, see about in the movies. He uh, has also been a professor at Columbia and now he is a professor at the Boston university of public health. He's written a ton of articles. I just spoke with him before we got on. He's extremely pleasant, very down-to-earth, despite being so smart, which I find most of the people I get on are actually super cool. So I'm really proud to have uh, Patrick Kenyon on the show. Patrick, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thanks, Mass. I'm really happy to share my knowledge with your audience. So, Patrick,
1: you've studied a lot about health and climate change. How did you get into those areas?
0: Well, I was actually trained. You mentioned the Harvard training. I was trained as an air pollution epidemiologists, which is sort of understanding the health effects of air pollution. But then after I worked in that field for a while, I started noticing the evidence about climate change and, and how serious it was and how potentially important it was going to be in the future. But really, nobody was studying it from a health point of view. So this is about 20 years ago, and I started getting involved when I was at Columbia with some climate researchers and started looking at what it might mean for health in the future. And, and I was really alarmed at what we found, and, and so I just, that sort of snowballed and I just got more and more interested in that topic. In recent years, more and more people have started to take notice and I think there's a growing interest in this topic.
1: It wasn't, at least for me, it was like five years ago that I started, or five, seven years ago, I started hearing more about air pollution being really important. And even though we're in Copenhagen or live in Copenhagen normally, now that I'm in the, in the winters, so I'm at a warm place, but otherwise we're supposed to have so good air. But I looked into it recently and I got like this um, air filter and it told me to close the windows. And I was like, because it couldn't keep up with cleaning the air inside. So, uh, this is something that, like even in cities where you think you have clean air, uh, it seems to be a, a rising problem.
0: Yeah. You know, I think generally air pollution has gotten better in North America and Europe over the last few decades. But that doesn't mean it's clean enough to be completely healthy. And there's like little hotspots, depending on where you are in a city. There could be um, major traffic, diesel vehicles, trucks and buses on the on the road. Do you live near something like that? Yeah, really, it could be, the levels could be quite high. And I think it does make sense in those cases to consider some kind of air filtration.
1: Yeah. So before going deep, what are like the overall themes we need to understand about air pollution? So we kind of understand it, so we can do something active about it. My cleaner, or whatever you call it, air pollution cleaner, says something about air quality index. Mm-hmm. But that's just one thing. Like, what
0: are the concepts that we need to understand? Yeah, there's a couple of big ones, I guess. One is that we often, there's many different kinds of air pollution. So it's very complicated, but we, we t- to try to make it simple, we also often reduce it down to something called particulate matter or PM for short, and that's like little tiny particles floating in the air. And it's like the one kind of air pollution that we have the most evidence about the health effects. So it's, and it's a major part of those indexes that you talked about. The air quality index is usually dominated by the particulate matter. So I think, you know, that's one way to simplify the discussion. Another, you know, broad point I think it's worth noting is that air pollution levels vary tremendously around the world. Mm. This won't become as a surprise, I'm sure to your listeners, you know, like I said, North, in Northern Europe and also in North America, we've cleaned up our air quite well, although it's still somewhat of a problem. But if you go to India or China or South Asia, it's a completely different story. And in, in cities in Africa, they haven't even really started to deal with it at all, so there's really like a big global discrepancy in, in air pollution. And so a lot of research now, I think has to start focusing on those places where the problem still exists. not to say that we can ignore it in, in the rich countries, like where, where we live.
1: No, I think it's a general problem that we. Also just move the problems from the Western world to the poor world. Just like, oh, we don't have that much pollution and we're not like burning that much stuff or oh, we don't, we're not burning uh, different plastics or metals. And then we just ship it down to India somewhere That's a, yeah, it's embarrassing when you, when you become aware of some of the stuff that's happening.
0: Yeah, that's, that's part of the problem. And part of it's too, that, that as economic development occurs in different countries, there's this initial surge of industrial activity that produces tons of air pollution, the economy is getting better. People are having more, better lives, but then they look around and they notice how polluted it's gotten. Like China encountered this about 10 years ago. I mean, the pollution was terrible, but they finally had the economic wherewithal to start dealing with it. And that's kind of an evolution. European countries went through 50 years ago so did the United States. And other countries are just getting there, like India, probably in the future, African countries. So there's this kind of economic development aspect. There's this curve called the Kuznets curve, where... Environment gets worse and then economic activity gets, well, robust enough that you can actually start to deal with the problem. But you raise a good point though. It's, it's also, as we cleaned up in the Northern parts of the world, we've exported a lot of the industries that used to be so polluting. And so that's part of the problem as well. Mm.
1: But it's always as complex as manifest as to it, as you're pointing out as well.
0: Yeah. So yeah.
1: PM, I heard about that as well. Uh, if I'm, is it correct that there's like different levels of PM?
0: I think i have three on my uh, yeah, device. Well, yeah, there's, do you mean like PM 2.5 or PM 10 or something like yeah. that? Or PM 1, yeah. Yeah, those little numbers next to the PM refer to the size of the particles. So it's, if, if we're talking about PM 10, it means all the particles that are 10 micrometers or smaller. Those are particles that can get into your nose, basically. And But the littler ones, the, the 2.5, those are like two and a half microns. Those not only get into your nose, but they get all the way in deep into your lungs, And that's where we think the damage is greatest. So PM2.5 has been a common you know, metric that we use. And then people, I think now, starting to think about even smaller particles. So PM1 is something people are talking about, but it's not yet sort of officially recognized. There's not enough data really to know exactly what the health effects are.
1: What can we do about these things? One thing is becoming aware. There's a challenge with air pollution. And there's different forms. There's like from cars. There's like industries. There's... Uh, You're cooking, there's like candles. Yeah. Where do we start?
0: Yeah, those are all things that are producing this PM that I was talking about. And and actually some of the biggest sources are indoor ones like candles and cooking and cigarette smoking. But, you know, on a societal basis, what we've done and what's worked pretty well is ratcheting down the emission limits for things like cars and trucks. Making each generation of new vehicles get cleaner. And that's really helped. Uh, Same for power plants and other kind of emission sources. That's what's been successful, I think, in cleaning up the ratcheting down those regulations. There's there's a new trend that I think is going to be really important in this regard, especially for cities, and that's the electrification of the vehicle fleet. You know, I think that's happening pretty rapidly in Europe, including in, in Denmark, but other European countries. It's starting to happen in the US, and, and that's going to really help because we're going to take the pollution that's... Currently, it's being emitted on the street, right where we walk and breathe and play. It's going to move that pollution to power plants where it could be much more efficiently controlled in a more sort of centralized location, and then eventually transitioning to renewable energy. So you're using solar or wind power, so there's no pollution anywhere, including at at the point of the, the exhaust from the vehicle. There won't be any exhaust from the vehicle. So so that's a transition that's going to be really important, I think, over the next couple of decades in, in making cities much healthier and cleaner.
1: Yeah. It's fascinating. Norway has been really, really good at electrifying the vehicle fleet. Mm -hmm. Denmark has been a bit more slow. We have some of the highest taxes in the world on cars. Mm. And we had for some years that there was no tax on electric vehicles, which helped a lot. Mm. But right now the government is discussing different things. But it's interesting to see. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting as well. Like one thing is the societal, like as an individual, you can't do much. You can vote, you can go like protest and so on. But you're not just going to change the policies. What are things that we as individuals can do to improve our air quality, both like where we go, whether we exercise, where we cook at home and so on.
0: Yeah. Let's start with the home environment. Like I said, there's some important sources. So trying to avoid burning things in the house would be as good. So that includes candles and incense, even though we like those things in some ways, but they're producing pollution and I know I'm, I'm allergic and asthmatic. And if I go to a restaurant where there's every, every table has a candle. After about an hour, my nose gets so congested that I can no longer really smell the food. And I think other people are probably like that too. It's So I think starting with the indoor environment is something we really have control over. Gas stoves, although they're fun to cook on, they also produce pollution. They're, they're producing a lot of nitrogen dioxide, which is not great for us to breathe. Um, and so moving to conduction heating, like these new electric stoves, I think work really well. Actually, I got one about a year ago and it's it it heats up so much faster, actually, than gas. It takes a little getting used to, but you can... So avoid- it's also easier to clean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so avoiding burning indoors is one thing that we can do to really improve our own personal air quality. I think also... If just yeah. staying on that, so someone might be listening and saying, okay, but there's a million things that
1: I could do. How much does it matter? So someone be like, of all the things that I could focus on, not having a gas door, not having candles and so on, because I often discuss it with my girlfriend that I don't want candles. I said it's not good for our indoor environment, and I don't feel it's super nice, and it also like stains the the walls and so on if you do it for too long.
0: But how much does it matter? I think it matters a lot. I I can't give a number, but uh, because we spend eighty or ninety percent of our time, what we do with our indoor environment is has a very dominant influence over our health. I'm not sure anybody's done a study to quantify it, but I yeah. my intuition would be that it's a very it would make a very large difference. On your personal health, societally, it's not what you do in your home is not gonna really affect the larger environment, but it's gonna affect your environment where you live 90% of the time. Yeah. Another
1: thing, indoor environment that I heard is um, furniture, different things that we are buying, our clothes as well, if we don't wash it first. What are some of the ones that you see are the important ones to be aware of?
0: Yeah, there's, there's these things called volatile organic compounds, you it's like things you can smell, things that have perfume, so like new furniture, new carpet, Freshly painted walls, all of those things, you can sort of smell them. And that's, those are VOCs. Um, and that's, we don't really have good data on what the health impacts are, but we think it's probably not a good idea to have too much VOC. So there's a movement to try to move towards materials in the home and the office, which are, which don't give off as much of that stuff. And so there's some sort of green building standards really try to emphasize getting away from the high VOC. There's one particular VOC called formaldehyde that a lot of people have heard about. So there's like these particle boards that produce a ton of, give off a lot of formaldehyde. That's, formaldehyde is really not good for health. And so we've really pushed on that one, but there's lots of other EOCs that are indoors as well. Every consumer product can potentially produce them. like deodorants, uh, air fresheners, um, all sorts of things. Some people are very sensitive. Other people, it doesn't seem to bother.
1: No. what can you do? Like just air it out or consider like the materials? I guess those are two big ones.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. More ventilation often, at least in terms of these VOCs that I'm talking about, usually the levels indoors are much, much higher than from outdoors. So like opening the windows, sort of contradicting what we talked about before, but generally from that perspective, it's better to have fresh air coming in, uh, sure. especially if you can also be cleaning the air that's coming in. So you're getting fresh air, you're getting the benefit, but you're also cleaning the air. I think that's, a, that's an important, and then just limiting the, or having those materials in your household. Yep. You can just sort of avoid the ones that are most damaging.
1: So my AirFresh also recommends that I open the windows once in a while, but if it needs to get the AQ1 index down to one, it's like after a while, especially also if it's the middle of the day, which mm-hmm. makes sense, close to a bigger road, mm-hmm. uh, whereas if in, in the evening or in the morning where there's not yep. that much traffic, um, then it doesn't have to need. Another thing is cleaning things. So uh, down here where I'm living in Dominican, we had a cleaner come by and my headache I had a really bad headache afterwards. She had also used, there's a full bottle, you're supposed to use that for 50 times of cleaning, and she had used 80% of that for one cleaning. So clearly not the way you should use it. But that I could feel instantly physically that when I was in the house, like I just started having a headache.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It's something I haven't studied too much, but I did do a study when I was in New York City of indoor air pollution and children with asthma. And we noticed in some of those... Households, actually, they were often Dominican households. There was a habit of using cleaners, like really smelly cleaners in the households. And we didn't study that specifically, but we noticed it. We noticed that it was very common and I I think it could be an interesting question as to what the respiratory health effects of of those sort of heavy duty cleaners are in that sort of cultural setting.
1: Yeah, it was definitely, it was really strong, opened all the windows. Once I got away from the house, I felt fantastic.
0: Yeah, I think you can, you can clean things pretty well without using those kinds of things. So yeah. I would encourage your cleaner to consider that.
1: Yeah, that's it. We're, we're also telling her if you use it, it's like, it's a little spoon. It's not the full okay. bottle. Yeah. Uh, but also for her, the health for her was really, yeah. Yeah. really bad. We were quite concerned and like, we also had giving her gloves and so on that she didn't want to wear and so on. Whereas if you're using these chemicals, you gotta be careful with yourself. But I think there's a lot of cultural thing about it. At least where we're from in Denmark It's it's something people talk about, you need to put proper gloves on and we have like high regulation and like what can actually be in food and many other things compared to other countries. We are stricter. So, so that's kind of our mindset and culture to, to go into these things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. The uh, indoor air quality problems are very culturally specific. They vary a lot. One thing that's worth noting is that in some parts of the world, particularly in Africa and India, people cook with really dirty fuels, like even wood or dung inside their household. That produces a tremendous amount of air pollution. It's a major health burden on a global basis.
1: Yeah. I have a friend who worked at a startup actually, it ended up being a company where they were helping uh, change to electrify. So they didn't have those uh, indoor pollutions for cooking. Mm-hmm. Same. So what about mold? Is that in the area that you also worked in? Because uh, I hear a lot about mold being potentially extremely uh, bad for your health.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mold is a, I mean, I've done a little bit of work also in that New York City study that I was talking about. Mold's an important risk factor for asthma and probably other health outcomes as well. And it's very hard to avoid when there's moisture. So if you're living in a part of the world where moisture is prevalent, probably that's true when you're in your summer, in your winter resonance. mold is going to be a bigger challenge or in a household anywhere in the world where there's water damage. If the rainfall doesn't get sort of shed away from the household and causes like wetness on the roof and the ceilings and the walls. And it's once mold becomes prevalent, it's really hard to control. It produces a lot of spores that people can get extremely allergic to, as well as have sort of stronger reactions to um, so I think avoiding moisture, keeping the uh, surfaces, interior surfaces as dry as possible, is a way to try to avoid this problem. Um, so I'm not an expert just, on it. I'm not an expert on this. It, yeah, it's a really pro- go ahead. Sorry. So I shouldn't just leave the water like lying there, and thinking that it's going to dry
1: out if it's warm. I should. No, leave no.
0: I would try to. I would try to get rid of it and try to avoid water coming in any way. But if, if there's a leak somewhere, that should be fixed. Yeah, and it, it's hard. You have to almost replace the materials. Once the wallboard gets infected with the mold, it's really hard to just clean it up. You really almost have to replace it with some fresh stuff.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting topic where I heard many people get really, really sick. Mm-hmm. Some people are like doing without any problems at all. I feel like the more I interview people and the more experts I talk to, it kind of like there's a spectrum of what can be not so good for you. But for most people, it doesn't really affect them. You're going to be fine if you don't have other things. But if you're already um, vulnerable or something else, some things can have such a big impact, like mold. The people are like, they can't be anywhere after they got really bad with mold um, and other people are still thriving in yeah. it, right?
0: Yeah, they're exactly right. Yeah, there's a huge uh, variation in the population response, which I think has to do with our immune systems, mm. which are which vary a lot. Some people have really sort of hyperactive immune systems, which is good, you know, for fighting off infections, but it might actually, they kind of overdo it in reacting to things that are not really dangerous, like allergens and moles. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm one of those kind of people that, yeah, gets very allergic to things that probably I shouldn't be. Well, how do you deal with
1: that in the research? Because often you look at what's the general population, then you have all the outliers that get extremely sick and so on. How do you ensure that we don't just look at, ah, it's good for a lot of people. Then you have these small circles, which just remove from the data and then it looks good, right?
0: Well, there's a couple yeah, a couple of ways to, to approach that from a research point of view, but the most common way would be to specifically recruit people into your study who are in the tail. And you can get, for example, if it's asthmatics who are allergic to things, you could find those people working with a clinic that sees patients. And then as the patients come in, you can say, oh, would you like to be in a study? That gives you a way to sort of examine that tail Uh, rather than just going out to the general population and getting 95% of people that don't have the problem. It's really the people in the 5% tail that you might really care most about. So yeah, there's ways to, as a researcher, to go after that.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How is it in regards to air pollution? Because a challenge with a lot of research is where is the funding coming from? And does anyone care to fund the studies? Yeah. Is that a challenge as well in air pollution? Or there's enough people that are interested in NGOs or rich families that are like, let's put some money in, this is important?
0: Well, that's a really good question. In the case of air pollution, there's been a very strong governmental funding support for many decades, I think because of regulations. So like, in the United States, we have the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency that sets standards and in order for them to set standards, they need data evidence and so they the government funds studies to produce the evidence. I think the same is true in europe there's been a lot of funding from uh, the EU for air pollution studies and health studies the, the situation is quite different for climate change and climate change and health that's an, that's a that's an issue that's very much like you you posed your question it's It's mostly foundations and rich individuals that are currently helping that field move forward. Governments have not jumped in yet. I think they will eventually, but the government systems tend to lag behind. They're very, like huge inertia in those sort of funding apparatuses. Mm -hmm. So it's taking a while for that to come around. So air pollution is pretty well funded, but not so much climate change. Okay. But I love research,
1: Um, but it's so complex and there's so many ways to pose questions and so many ways to, uh, to do the research and it's expensive if you want to do it right. And many people forget about that. So of course, there's a lot more research going into where there's economic interest because someone needs to find the money. Like uh, you can say, money grows on trees, like some food, but but millions of dollars are not just lying there just to be put in. So it has to be a priority for someone, politicians or a company that wants to show like, hey, what we're doing is not so bad, or what we're doing is really good, right? So yeah,
0: yeah, good
1: point. And um what are some of, what are, um, what are things we can do Have are there any breathing techniques that you looked into if that's been part of your research to, if we have these air pollutions to deal with it better, I've learned that like north breathing is better because it filters the air better, but is that something that you've worked with?
0: Yeah, sure. It's true that, especially for the particular matter that we talked about, the particles, the more you can make the air kind of go through a complicated route in getting to your lungs, the more likely that the particles will land in the upper respiratory system and not get into your lungs. So the nose is pretty good at doing that. It's, you know, a very complicated pathway through the nose and with lots of these hairs and all sorts of things that can capture lots of particles. So it's better if you think you're in a polluted environment, if you're exercising out, if you're like biking on a roadway where there's traffic, if you can breathe through the nose, that would be good. It would help. You mentioned, your exposure. you mentioned hair. So uh, that's something. So
1: hair is not such a bad thing to have in your nose because it actually filters the uh, Yeah, sure. that correct? That's
0: right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So breathing techniques, I think, yeah, nose breathing is going to reduce your exposure a little bit, or at least reduce the amount that gets in. I think we can also try to avoid moving around the city where there's lots of pollution, and you can sort of tell just by looking. I mean, if you're on a roadway with lots of heavy diesel vehicles, try to walk on a parallel street that's one block away, and, and you'll reduce your exposure to minutes. So you can sort of think about those things. Also, I think we're getting more and more ability with cell phone apps to try to track what air pollution looks like as you move through your life. And you can sort of change your behavior a little bit to respond to what the air pollution is doing on a particular day or a particular location.
1: I think that's really interesting. I remember reading an article, so in, in Copenhagen, we have this specific street where there's a lot of traffic and there's also some lakes there. And most people go running at those lakes because there's been <laughs> water and so on. But that they said like at a certain time, like the net effect of the exercise would be negative. Mm. Because of the pollution, I remember having a discussion with some colleagues because one of them wanted to run down there and run around, but it was like at like the high time of car. So I was like, I think I would rather just run here in the park. So we don't get, we sucking in all of that pollution.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think being mindful about where you exercise and when you exercise can be really helpful. Pollution tends to be worse in a city during the morning rush hour and also the afternoon rush hour. And for some pollutants like ozone, which we haven't talked about, which is like this kind of smog stuff, it really builds up over the day. So late in the day is the worst time. So I guess in an ideal world, if you can get up early before the, before the early commuter rush, that would be a great time to run because the air pollution going to be lowest or maybe in the middle part of the day before, between the two rush hours would be mm. good, but late in the day it tends to be not so good from both an ozone and a particle point of view.
1: But let's go more into the ozone. So. Where do we get that from? And you're saying it's building up during the day.
0: Yeah. The ozone is a gas. It's there's, we hear about ozone as the, the ozone layer, which is up in the stratosphere, really high up in the air. It actually serves a very useful purpose because it captures ultraviolet light and protects us. But when we have ozone down where we're breathing, that's not, yeah, ozone's not good. It's a very strong irritant gas and it forms usually with lots of sunlight in the summertime when it's warm and when there's lots of cars driving around, emitting these VOCs that I talked about before and nitrogen oxides. And there's this kind of like chemical reaction that occurs in the atmosphere that produces ozone. It takes a while for the ozone to form, which is why it usually shows up in the afternoon after the morning rush has put the pollution into the air. And then there's these reactions that occur. So anyway, yeah, I mean, ozone's an a interesting, complicated pollutant. It's, it's it's also pretty important from a health point of view. It's not quite as bad as PM, a particular manner, but it's pretty important and we should be concerned about it as well.
1: Yeah. Patrick, what do you do
0: to kind of protect your lungs and your health from a air pollution perspective? Yeah, well, I use my nose actually. So if you're walking along a road, you can smell when there's exhaust. And a lot of times I'll switch to the other side of the street. Because usually the wind because of the wind patterns. It's going to be one side of the street versus the other that's going to be maybe twice as bad. And so you can if if you're if I'm along a roadway and i and I smell a lot of pollution, i might I'll find a way to kind of switch sides or find a parallel street. Um, you know i'm I'm just kind of observant about that. I, I would say though that to a large extent, it's not a big problem in a city like Boston where I currently live, because pollution levels are really quite low in general. It's only in very specific locations along a, like a really busy road, which I don't end up on very often. So it's not something that, that really concerns me a huge amount. If I was living in a much more polluted place, I'd have to think about it more. Yeah, Fortunately, I don't have to as much. There was an interesting study I might just mention. Uh, there's a Finnish researcher named Marco Tanio, who did an interesting study about five years ago, trying to compare the health benefits of exercise, which are tremendous, against the health disbenefits or, you know, harms from air pollution. And he looked at, like, different levels of particulate matter and different levels of physical activity. And he basically concluded, based on the evidence that was available, which I think is strong evidence, that unless you're in a place like Delhi, where pollution, where the PM level is above 100, in most, most other parts of the world, you can bite for several hours in a day before you would start to have any sort of negative consequences. So that's I think that gives us some kind of confidence that in general, we're doing ourselves more benefit than harm by exercising. Even though, like I said, you can minimize your risk by being smart about where you do it and when you exercise. Still, on average, you're going to do fine no matter what, because exercise is always, so outweighs the harms of air pollution, w- at least according to Marco's work. It's, but that was around 100
1: in the air quality index?
0: It's 100 per, 100 micrograms per cubic meter of, particular matter i'm not sure exactly how that translates to the air quality index uh, we'd have to disentangle the index and see but uh, 100 is very high it's there aren't many places in the world that reach that level on a daily basis anymore i think delhi does once in a while beijing i don't think so anymore so it's a pretty unusually high level these days
1: all right so the conclusion is exercise unless you're in delhi the worst place then it's uh, it's still not yet
0: yeah, on certain days in Dublin, yeah. So I know in
1: Denmark when they did it, it was only like at a very short area and there was a specific time of day when there was the most pollution. That's when they said it would have a negative effect.
0: I'd be curious to see that yeah. study. It, sound, it sounds interesting.
1: But I, I wonder, what, like again, with all studies, right? How did they do it? How was yeah. the sample size? Also the day they did it and so on. There's so many factors going in. And did mm-hmm. they really measure up against someone? Or not or they're just like making the conclusion that because I read in the article that, that this would be better not to run than actually do that run at that time, right? But was good to hear that uh, we can still go running and we should still go running or biking or so. whatever it is. Yeah, thanks,
0: think so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> What's, what about air refreshers or these indoor things that you can have to clean the air? I, for example, have one. It's When I did some research on it, there, it was very hard to figure out what was up and down. A lot of claims and something about how much it should protect, like 90 point... 97, I thing where if it was 99 or 99.97, or if it was ninety-nine point nine five, then there wasn't a screw and so on. Have you looked into any of that stuff about what's something we can put inside our house?
0: Yeah, I don't have specific recommendations, but I have seen pretty strong scientific evidence that air filters can really help reduce the exposures to pollution indoors. There are the kind you want are the ones that are that use a, something called a HEPA filter. which are the ones that are highly efficient, like you're talking about, and specifically for those really tiny particles that we care the most about. There are some air cleaners that are marketed as air cleaners that can be damaging. They produce ions, and they produce... So you have to be really careful about anything that's called an ion generator, um, because that can actually produce ozone pollution indoors, which is harmful. But as long as you're just pulling air through a filter, a really high-efficiency filter, you're doing some good. And I guess it just comes down to sort of what's how strong is the motor how quickly does it exchange the air and so depending on the size of your your room or your household you have to sort of scale it to to make sure it can sort of handle the burden of, of the size that you're living in but those things can be quite effective they, they there have been some chinese studies that have you know done these kind of controlled experiments where people use them or don't use them and they track their respiratory symptoms and other kind of physiological measures on. They really have a substantial benefit both in terms of exposure but also in terms of help. So I think it's I think it's pretty important to consider that especially if you're living in a place that's if you n- near a, a polluted area or in a polluted city. I generally don't worry about that here in in the Boston area. Although with a COVID epidemic we or pandemic we started to think about this kind of question from a different perspective and I think if you're in a crowded if you have people come into your house for a party or something like that, you know, if you have a filter, it's going to help reduce the particle load a little bit. So there's reasons to do it. I think even beyond just the air pollution perspective.
1: This, I heard someone doing some research <laughs> and doing that, the different light that you can send, you can have light that actually kills some of the particles. And there's an, a famous investor in Denmark that invested into this company where I'm not sure what light it was, but it was supposed to kill some of the germs. Is that something you're... I don't
0: know about that. It might be ultraviolet, but... Yeah, but it can be like a disinfectant, but I don't really know too much about that, no.
1: No, fair. How would, if you were going to, like, you moved to a city and it was going to be more polluted and you wanted a, an air filter, What uh, how would you go about that research? Because it is a jungle when you look out there.
0: That's a really good point. I think I would probably, what I would try to do first is go to some kind of like government documents. I would see if if the US EPA or maybe the WHO or some kind of governmental body has published a recent report that evaluates the effectiveness of different aeropropluses. And I would sort of read that and try to make some judgment. Short of that, I would just obviously, like other people, go to Google and start Sort of trying to learn as much as I can. Usually, I mean, there's usually some pretty good rating stuff online. At least here where I am, like the New York Times rates things. Actually, New York Times has a good rating system for consumer products. So I go there a lot, Yeah, a it's called Wirecutter. Yeah. I don't have really great advice on that, but I, I would do research like anybody else, but I guess I'd be a little bit more informed because I know something about the subject.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Shifting a little bit in questions and time is running. So Patrick, looking at your CV. Most people from the outside would say that's extremely impressive, both that you went to Harvard, that you managed to be a professor at Columbia and now also in Boston, which is, I know from many friends, it's a top university as well in the world. What do you think made you get to where you are today compared to some of the other people that would have wanted the same results, but might not have gotten them?
0: Yeah, it's a hard question. Good question. Um, I actually, I kind of go to the issue of curiosity, which I think I saw you talking about in one of your podcasts, I think just being curious about the world has helped kind of propel me towards looking at research questions that are important. So sort of basic curiosity combined with a concern about what could actually be impactful in terms of policy, like what do we really need to know, not just what would be fun to learn, but also what could help sort of make the world a little bit cleaner and better. And there's lots of people, I think, that are smart and hardworking. I think just sort of sticking, keeping your nose to the ground and just like taking the steps one at a time and just kind of keeping at it. Over the course of many years, like I've been in this field for quite a long time, you just kind of start to accomplish things. So I think sort of perseverance along with curiosity, I think those are the two things that seem to really help.
1: Yeah. Got it. You've also been a bit ahead of the curve in regards to some of the things you've been interested in. So I'm, I'm guessing you also made a bit of resistance once in a while. What would you recommend someone that are looking at something now that's a bit ahead of the curve uh, and a super curious thing Hey, there's something interesting about this area.
0: Yeah, I would encourage people to, to pursue their aspirations. That, that is something that I've done, especially like climate change. When I started getting interested in it, like 20 or so years ago, nobody in my field was really very few. Well, there were a couple, but not many were really thinking about this. And the reason was because there was no money. To support the research so like why would why would you jump into a field when there's no way to fund your salary and your, your research but sometimes it's a really important problem and climate change is clearly an important problem living on the horizon so i would encourage people to sort of think broadly um, about what's really important not just what's fundable not just what's currently of, of interest to your peers and then chip away at it like in my case even though there was no not a lot of funding for it there were lots of students that were super interested in it so uh, I could get students to start working on these projects for not a lot of money. They started getting results, getting findings, which got published. And so we made progress in spite of the, the limitations of the funding environment. And I think that's always, that sort of, there's always a way forward if it's an important problem. And the beauty, the beautiful thing is that young people are always going to sort of agree with you. There will be some sort of energetic people that'll want to help you move that idea forward. And that's what really helped me in that regard.
1: Yeah. Are there any subjects now that you're looking at that could be kind of um, the next ones in in your opinion that might are not getting as much attention today, but if we are sitting and having this conversation 20 years time, we'd be like laughing about all the things we're wrong about, but this was one of the subjects that got more attention. I don't think,
0: I don't have a real big one right now, but there's a couple of things that I'm pursuing that, that are really focused on how cities can solve the climate crisis at the same time, improving quality of life and health for the residents. And that's focusing on things like parks and green space, which planting more trees and making more parks available and more friendly. You know, it's good for the climate. It cools the local environment. It it absorbs carbon dioxide, but it also makes places where people can go and recreate and have social interactions. And there's all sorts of health benefits that come from that. So I'm trying to promote that. I'm trying to do the research that convinces cities that this is a good investment. Another one is physical activity, making infrastructure in cities, um, like, you know, Copenhagen has been a leader in this regard making it possible for people to get around in a city in some way other than in a car. Um, in the United States, that's not so good, so easy, but we're, I'm trying to push that because it's, again, it's good for the health. It's good for the climate and it's good for quality of life.
1: It's, I was close to going into when I was finishing my master actually in that area. Um, Because it's insane how big an impact it actually has, both like having nature and like what we're learning about just being able to see a tree outside of something green has a, we mean we have lower amount of sickness in the workplace. The person that has that view compared to someone that doesn't, Japan has been at the forefront with biophilia and like the love of nature and so on. And then at the same time, how you can access, get people to move. How do you design cities for health, uh, which is very much about movement community and so many, it's, it's, yeah. It's so fascinating that every yeah, it's an
0: exciting topic. I think that's yeah. where that's sort of the forefront, and we're not we're not really doing that yet, at least oh. not generally. But we could, and we should. Yeah. So, rounding off, I always ask two questions. One is, where can people find out more about you, Patrick? I guess you could look at my if you search on my BU faculty profile. I have a list of publications. Maybe that would be a good place to start. I'm a I'm not a super social media person, so I've I've been. Experimenting in Twitter, you can check out my Twitter feed, which is available, but it's not very, uh, it's not very frequent at the moment. I've got to learn how to do that better. So yeah, that's all I could really say at this point. Yeah. yeah. I'll put that in the
1: show notes so people can... watch the... Do you remember your Twitter account name?
0: I will have to give it to you afterwards. I don't have it on my head.
1: Yeah. No, I'll get in the show notes. And the last thing is if you had to give three advice for someone about how to live a happy, healthy and meaningful life, you might have mentioned some of them already. What What would that be?
0: I would say uh, get regular exercise. I think spend time in nat- in, in, engrossed in nature and the environment around you. And uh, I guess find a personal passion that you can develop yourself so that you get better at something. For, for me, it's playing guitar and doing artwork. And it, having something that you're working at and you're getting better at makes you feel better. So, so those are three things that I think make my life happen. Fantastic. Yeah.
1: Thank you. So you mentioned nature. I have to ask you about that because it's something I'm getting more and more curious about. Do you, is there any research or do you think it's plausible that we can kind of balance that having a lot of pollution and then getting out into nature that can help our health? I'm not sure whether we get rid of the poisons or so on, but that we stabilize, at least we know that our blood pressure can change if we go into nature.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of increasing amount of health literature showing the health benefits of being in nature from mental health perspective, physical activity perspective, a social interaction perspective, and many different health outcomes. Cardiovascular mortality, birth outcomes, all sorts of things are improved. If you have access to nature, we're still trying to understand why we don't really know the pathway, what is it that makes it so good, but there's a huge amount of evidence it's building up. It's very strong evidence.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Patrick, exciting. Thank you so much for your time here on the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much. I really had a good time. Thank you.